This morning you're going to get a short psalm and a message that I hope is not too long. We're going to make it up to you next Sunday. Curtis is going to preach all 176 verses of Psalm 119 in 30 minutes. You ready, Curtis? You got that? Jokes aside, uh, thank you to all of you who did pray for me this week and encouraged me um, with texts. Preaching and its preparation are spiritual endeavors. And since faithful preaching is central to robust, healthy churches and Christianity, our enemy hates it. So if you think of it, please pray for your preacher every week. Please stand again if you are able, and let's read Psalm 131 together from the ESV for me. A Song of Ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands for how long, people? Forever, amen. Please be seated. Today's message is titled, The King Who Cares. The king I have in mind with that title is God, not David. Now, Psalm 131 comes at us right out of the gate with two statements that capture how great God is and how small and needy we are. I do want to take some time to reflect on what that means about God in us before we get into the text. This is also a product of my own readings and meditations the last couple of months, um, apart from Psalm 131. And as I came to Psalm 131, I I saw how they shed light on it, and um, I felt burdened to preach it. Then we're going to go through the Psalms three verses one by one. So here's our outline today. First, we have a preamble, the king who cares. Then Psalm 131, an introduction. And then three sections, each for each verse. Humble beneath our great God, verse 1. Happy beside our caring God, verse 2. And hopeful because of our eternal God, verse 3. First, the king who cares. The opening line of Tozer's, the knowledge of the holy, has been quoted from this pulpit before. You've heard it. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. But if you're like me, when you hear that verse, that, that quote, you say, wow, what a, what a profound statement. But let's stop and consider our own answer. No Sunday school pad answers today. What comes to your mind first when you really think about God? If your answer is along the lines of Yahweh, holy, righteous, judge, king of kings and lord of lords, creator, omnipotent, sovereign, Jesus, trinity, 
Those are good answers. If your answer is Father, Abba, Savior, Shepherd, Comforter, those are good answers. You're in good company. J.I. Packer wrote, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. What you personally think about God matters. What is foremost in your heart and mind as you pray to Him, enjoy Him, worship Him, it affects your relationship with Him and it affects how you read your Bible. Everyone has thoughts about God. Even the fool thinks there is no God, and that's a thought about God. It's a wrong thought, but it's a thought. You, each and every one of you, is a theologian. So let's be good ones. Good theologians are biblical. All thoughts about God should be formed by what He has said in His Word. The Bible tells us a lot about God. It tells us that He is awesome beyond our understanding. He is uncreated, eternal. He possesses absolute power, knowledge, and wisdom, past, present, and future, and dwells in unapproachable light. He created everything out of nothing, and He upholds it all, each moment, by His own power. Nothing has ever happened, and never will, apart from His own decree. His creation culminated in man and woman who have rebelled against Him ever since. He is perfectly holy and righteous, cannot abide sin, and must punish it with His burning wrath, all who reject and disobey Him, disobey Him. The only right response to this God is to bow the knee in worship and obedience. This God makes history's greatest figures out to be arrogant toddlers pushing sand around in His sandbox. Most of us, including me, spend our lives straining against one tiny little grain of sand as if it's the most important thing in the world. But what else does the Bible say about God? He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He repeatedly shows His patience and loving kindness as He holds out His arms, inviting sinners to come to Him. His great love for us moved Him to send His own Son, Jesus Christ, who came down from heaven, took on flesh, became fully man even while still being fully God, lived the sinless life that we could not, suffered and died for us, bearing our penalty for our sins. Jesus then rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is coming back one day just as He promised. God dwells with us right now, even indwells us, and never leaves us. He upholds us and has made eternal, precious promises to us, culminating in a sinless, glorious eternity with Him. Now, as I pray or sing or read my Bible, I usually recall the warm, caring, intimate God, the lover and Savior of my soul. Who wouldn't want that God? And the beauty is He is really like that. But the God of the Old Testament, 
is the same God of the New Testament. The God of the new heaven and new earth that we are promised in Revelation 21 through 22 is the same God of horrific judgment and wrath in Revelation 6 through 20. It is good sometimes for Christians to read the Old Testament. Despite this big book, I know mine's little, I get lots of jokes about that. Yours is either big because too many study notes or maybe you need the big print. Either way is good. Despite this big book from him and about him, God is so vastly beyond our comprehension in his power and wisdom and knowledge and holiness and patience and love and compassion that we can never do more than peek at the shoreline of the vast ocean of his greatness no matter how well we know our Bible. Eternity won't be enough time to grasp Him. No matter how well you understand the Bible, you cannot master God. If your doctrine has not humbled you, you get an F. The glory of God is that He is all these things. He is above and greater than all of His creation, unreachably and unfathomably greater than us, and also closer than you can imagine. To his children, he's even in us in a mystical union, and he will never forsake us. This, people, is the God who is. Amen? Amen. Now, we can overly focus on God's greatness, resulting in a mighty but distant God that isn't personally involved with us and isn't emotionally satisfying, or we can overly focus on God's intimacy, resulting in a sentimental God that fits nicely on our coffee mugs who is good as the occasional seal on the mortar cracks of our lies that we mess up, or is there for a little power boost when we need victory. Beware any gospel of affirmation that avoids entering the narrow gate of Christ by repentance and trust in Him. We must be careful that the truth of the great love of God and that He has for us, made available only through Christ, does not squeeze out every thought of his greatness and our unworthiness apart from Christ saving us. The God who is, the one who has revealed himself in the Bible, is, to use theology words, both transcendent, great and above, and imminent with us now, always. Holding on to these twin truths impresses upon our hearts and minds who God really is. It most magnifies the greatness and love of Jesus Christ and the beauty of the gospel when we realize the infinite chasm between God and us and that only through Jesus Christ do we have any claim at all on God's promises and love. This God who spoke into existence all that is, who created billions of stars, galaxies, the subatomic particles that make them, who ordained all the rules and forces that govern them, who made our minds and our souls and our bodies, who always upholds it all by His power. This is the very same God that condescends to save you and relate to you intimately and forever. This is the God who sent His Son to die and rise for you, who waits you in heaven if you will but trust in Christ, where you will see His face and He will be your light forever. This is the King who cares for you amidst life's trials and sorrows. There is nothing beyond His power or knowledge. 
There is nothing that can separate those of us who are in Christ Jesus from His love. This is the King who cares, and it's the God that I want you to see in Psalm 131 today. Let's get back to Psalm 131. It's been said that this psalm is a jewel of simplicity. It breathes the profoundest humility and submission to God's will and encourages the faithful to maintain a lively hope in God's sustaining grace. All in three verses. The superscription for our psalm today provides some context, a song of a sense of David. The author is David. That will help us later. Psalms 120 through 134 are labeled the songs of ascent. Jerusalem and Zion are mentioned a dozen times in them. Jerusalem is on a hill, so one always ascends to it from whatever direction one comes. Faithful travelers to Jerusalem probably sung these songs as they approached. They're mostly short, except for one, easy to memorize. And they are filled with word pictures and celebrations of God's goodness. We can get applications even from that superscription. I ask you, what preparations might help you see each Sunday as a spiritual ascent, as you come to worship? Fathers and husbands, are you leading Sunday mornings with a godly and expectant attitude? Do you look forward to singing together each Sunday? I've got bad news for you. If you don't, Heaven's going to disappoint you. Don't worry about others. They're worrying about how bad they sound. (laughs) We sing because God is worthy. Let's get to verse 1. Humble beneath our God. Humble beneath our God. So you see two parts to verse 1. First, David professes his own humility beneath God. Then he gives humility's result. David gives us two Hebrew expressions of humility. He says, my heart is not lifted up, and my eyes are not raised too high. You can come down afterward, all the height jokes about me you want afterward. My eyes are raised too high, perhaps. Hebrew poetry often uses repetition. But more than just poetry, something profound is being taught about pride here. Pride is first and foremost a matter of the heart. The heart isn't the ooey-gooey part of your feelings that doesn't need to make sense, it just needs to feel right. It isn't your infallible guide to happiness requiring only our affirmation. Your heart is your decision-making center. It brings together your thoughts, your feelings, your will, the pure, and the corrupt. Ah, there's the problem. The heart's most persistent and destructive corruption is pride. This heart of pride exists across humanity. It knows no boundaries of wealth, job, health, age, or circumstance. Anyone with a toddler knows that there's no lower age limit on pride. Being poor or sick does not guarantee humility. Humble circumstance isn't the same thing as a humble heart. In fact, Proverbs teaches that often, not always, the cause of low circumstances is pride. Proverbs 29, 23 as an example says, one's pride will bring him low. 
but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And while wealth and position do make it harder to be humble, it is possible. It helps us to know that this psalm is from David, the most renowned of Israel's kings, and to know that he knew humility beneath God. Numbers 12.3 says of Moses, the uniquely gifted prophet and leader of Israel, that he was the most humble man on earth, despite the mighty works God did through him. And what can we say of our Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest person ever? He came down from heaven, took on human flesh. His own testimony in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 is that he is what? Gentle and lowly. The Apostle Paul's testimony of Jesus in Philippians 2 is that in his life and death, he is our supreme example of humility. And we are called to have the same mind as Christ in this regard. David then says, his eyes are not raised too high. Pride has its seat in the heart, but it shows itself, including in our eyes. This is literally true. Angry glances without words, looks of derision or smugness, have you mastered those? Pride shows itself in the eyes. But this is probably not what David has in mind. The metaphor refers to haughtiness. Your translation might even have that, haughtiness. Haughtiness is pride that combines a high view of self with a low view of others. Raised eyes look beyond your circumstances unsatisfied. Raised eyes look over others' heads as those beneath you. Raised eyes foolishly look in the distance for the next opportunity for personal glory. Proverbs 17:24 says, "The discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth." Raised eyes look beyond the present to an unknown future, longing to be free of trials brought by all these annoying people, including the ones that I say I love. Pride is unsatisfied with its circumstances. Pride tells us we deserve what we want, whether it's praise or affection, pleasure, respect, money, health, or ease. We deserve a better spouse, a better job, more obedient children. We deserve less pain, less difficulty, less mean people, less resistance to our own will. David, this David who was anointed Israel's next king while still a shepherd boy. David who slew Goliath after being chastised for even showing up to the battle. David whose life was preserved from King Saul's murderous pursuit for years. This same David who repeatedly knew God's power and favor in his own life. He teaches us, don't lift our hearts or raise our eyes in pride. Don't look for more than what God has given you. This can happen to you even if today, physically, pride often lowers its eyes to look at our phones for pornography or Pinterest, which is housekeeping porn. 
or Instagram. Next in verse 1, David says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Again, it helps us to know David wrote this. Psalm 131 was not penned by a nameless worshiper who didn't know much about God with unknown life and trials to us, who had little occasion to wrestle in the hard moments of life and what they mean about God's goodness and power and trustworthiness. David is known to us, and he is no peasant, and he is no Pollyanna. 1 Samuel 13, 14 and Acts 13, 22 both say that David was a man after God's own heart. He is the author of half the Psalms. He had a profound knowledge of God. So this verse can't be licensed to avoid thinking deeply about God or to avoid using what gifts and opportunities He has given us for His glory and others' good to the best of our ability. David is not repenting of being the king God anointed him to be or of all the good he achieved or of saying all those deep, wonderful thoughts about God he said in so many other psalms. Those were not a waste of time. God is worthy of our best efforts to know him better in order to love and obey him better. This is what will see you through when struggling with life's hardships and the big questions. Sound theology will draw you closer to this same tender and faithful God we're going to see in verses 2 and 3. So if that's not what he's saying, what what is David saying? Well, the same Hebrew words for great and marvelous in verse 1 are used in several other psalms, and they always refer to God's own works. One example, Psalm 86.10, For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Wondrous things comes from the same Hebrew word as marvelous in Psalm 131, and there are similar uses elsewhere. David has reflected on what God has done, compared it to his own achievements and aspirations, and it has humbled him. He does not occupy himself with such things. This does not at all mean that he is done reflecting on God's works. It means he doesn't seek such greatness for himself. It literally means he doesn't walk in them. God's works are great and marvelous. Ours, even a king's, are tiny. God's purposes and God's will always stand. Ours either align with his or they fall. There is no one like him. David. God's chosen king of Israel, human ancestor of the promised Messiah, seated upon a throne that God swore to establish forever. This David knew that his works paled in comparison to God's and that even his works came from God. There were things beyond what God had given him that he was not to reach for. How about us? We live in an age of wonders, of human wonders. It's all too easy to fall into acceptance and reliance on them, to marvel at human achievements, take them for granted, with no acknowledgement of the God who made all matter and all energy and all its rules, the God who gives us the gifts to make and use this stuff. But all of it, 
modern medicine, our greatest feats of engineering, artificial intelligence, from the subatomic to the deepest space discoveries, all of it is the product of centuries of toddlers improving what other toddlers in the sandbox have done. Toddlers who didn't even make the sand. And just like toddlers, we often cry out, look what I've done! Everything new from the International Space Station to a nanobot is made by reconfiguring God-given stuff, using machines made from other God-given stuff, using God-given energy, using God-ordained rules of physics discovered by God-given intellects. I could have probably skipped all that diatribe and just quoted Alistair Begg, which I'll do now. It sounds much better in a Scottish accent, so I apologize for that. I'm not going to try to imitate it. Few of us today have any meaningful connection to the sources of our food and the products we consume. Most meet their daily needs, and much more, with the scan of a barcode, a click, or a swipe on a phone. If you want it, you get it, and often right away. With the instant gratification of our age, we can easily lose sight of all that goes into the supply chain of our sustenance the ultimate origin of which is God himself. He is the one who provides us with everything to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6.17. Here's the point. There are things too great and marvelous for us. We dare not lift up our hearts or raise our eyes in pride, yet we are free, even responsible, to explore understand and manipulate God's physical creation as much as He enables us to, and to understand His revealed will in His Word as much as we can. But we must remember who God is and what only He can do to lead us to humility. Applications. So what specific dangers are your lifted heart and raised eyes bringing to your life right now? to your marriage, or to your family? Have you diligently searched the Scriptures for help with pride? Whom do you know that could help you? And when will you call that person? What are you taking for granted in life that you ought to be more grateful to God for? Let's go to verse 2. Happy beside our caring God. Happy beside our caring God. On a first reading, Psalm 131 can seem like three disjointed thoughts. It actually seemed that way to me when I first read it this year, each standing alone. But there is a bridge between verse 1 and 2, and it's that little but very important word, but. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. The but that begins verse 2 means this is the alternative to the attitudes David has forsaken in verse 1. Instead of lifting up his heart and eyes in pride, aspiring to things God didn't intend for him to have or know, restless in pursuit of more than God intended for him, 
David has calmed and quieted his soul like a weaned child with its mother. What a tender picture. There is a technicality here. We are not certain whether this means a recently nursed infant who is now full or a child completely weaned from breastfeeding, which back then would have been about age three. I call such things inspired ambiguities because we can apply both. Now, we had one child who was not an easy baby. Anyone out there have one of those? We tried lots of things to get the hard one to sleep. A book popular at the time insisted we establish this pattern. The baby must nurse, wake, sleep. Nurse, wake, sleep. Don't let the baby sleep right after nursing. Why in the world did it insist on that? I have no idea, and I can't remember. Nothing came more naturally to that well-fed baby up against warm mommy than going to sleep. When fed, the child was satisfied, content, trusting. When hungry, the child was irritable and restless. Ladies, the same goes for a grown man on Sunday afternoon in his recliner. <laughs> what is this? This is a picture of contentment in God instead of in one's own achievements. Contentment in God instead of one's own achievements. It's either a child who has been totally satisfied by his mother's provision and still has all its needs met, or it's a child who rests peacefully in the mother's embrace, not because she's still supplying milk, but because her love is proven and trustworthy, her protection strong and secure. I think it means both. Both are powerful images of one who finds calmness and quiet in the provision and embrace of God. So this is what verse 2 says. David is happy beside his caring God. He has learned that pride and its pursuits cannot provide happiness, satisfaction, contentment. And isn't the same true for us? What does pride lead to? Anger, restlessness, lust, greed, broken relationships, bitterness, risk-taking foolishness, all of it leading to pain and disappointment. Pride doesn't provide happiness, it destroys it. A thousand years later, Paul wrote, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4. 9 through 13. Now, we too often focus on that last sentence. I can do all things through him who strengthens, me, who strengthens me. But what are the all things that Paul can do that he just described? 
be brought low or abound, face plenty or hunger, abundance or need. The secret Paul learned is contentment in the Lord, not some secret power. Here's the point of verse 2. True happiness, lasting contentment can only be found in something totally trustworthy, unchanging, powerful, and satisfying. That can only be our great God and His steadfast love. David saw this love, but now we, of all people, have its ultimate fulfillment revealed to us in Jesus Christ, as we will hear later. Some applications for you to consider. One big question, is Christ enough for you? If you haven't written anything down yet today, which is totally fine, and you only write down one thing, just write that down. Is Christ enough for me? Is He enough for you? Is He your treasure? Are you regularly overcome with anxiety, anger, lust, or greed? Those are symptoms of discontent. If that is you, maybe ask yourself these three questions. First, do I know God's love for me in Christ? Do I know it? Am I in Christ? Second, do I know His love but think too little of it? Third, do I think too much of myself and my problems? Hebrews 11.26 says, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Paul says in Philippians 3.8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Is he your treasure? Or maybe think about this. What makes you maddest when you don't get it? It could be some possession or affection or praise, or respect, if not getting that makes you mad regularly, that is your idol. Are you restless, unsatisfied with your life, your circumstances, your future prospects? What tiny grain of sand are you pushing around in the sandbox? What do you hope to gain from it? If you are hurting, sick, poor, Will you trust God even when you don't understand what He's doing? His sovereign will is among those things too great and marvelous for us often, but He can be trusted. How can I say with confidence that we can trust God? Let's look at verse 3. Verse 3, hopeful because of our eternal God. Hopeful because of our eternal God. So we heard in verse 1, God is great, we are not. We heard that God is satisfying in verse 2, and then we can depend on His love and care. So David then turns from his inward reflection to look outward on the nation charged to his stewardship as king, and he exhorts them, O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord 
from this time forth and forevermore. David has discerned the key to enduring happiness, setting aside restless striving and pride, trading it for contentment in the king who cares. Now he exhorts his people to have that same hope. David says in whom to hope, the Lord, and he also says for how long, now and forever. Forever, newsflash, is a long time. We glibly speak of forever in love stories and pop songs. We toss the word forever around waiting in drive through at Starbucks or Chick-fil-A. James Goey, not your Chick-fil-A, of course. But God and His love are truly forever. We creatures are too time-bound to really understand what that means. We can only dream of it, but it is true. Here are just two of the many verses that strike the same chord. Psalm 10:16, "The Lord is king forever and ever." Psalm 117:2, "For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever." The Psalms repeatedly proclaim that God's kingship and love are forever. His love is sovereign, unshakable, and unending. Now that is something we can hope in. But we aren't living under David's kingship in 10th century B.C. Jerusalem with its walls, its temple, its priests, and the sacrifices to remind us of these things. Ah, we have something far greater, don't we? Christ has come. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 say, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means that Jesus satisfied God's just demand for our death due to our sin and due to God's holiness and that Jesus died in our place as our substitute. Romans 5, 8, and 9, familiar to many of you, say, but God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. And finally, in Romans 8, 39, Paul wrote that nothing, in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing means nothing. That is steadfast. That is saving love that we can all place our hope in. The answer to how do we know that God loves us is because Christ has come. Here's the point, verse 3, because God is the almighty king who cares for his children, ultimately shown to us in Jesus Christ. We can confidently depend upon him for our present and our future forever.
application questions. Do you, like me, struggle to share the good news? I wonder if it's because I don't feel happy enough in Christ to think that He's worth sharing sometimes. Is maybe that true for any of us? I think it is for me. Second, life is a vapor. Eternity is forever. I'm older than probably most or some of you at least and younger than some of you for sure. I'm 57. But as I get older and I reflect on my age and mortality, friends my age have already died, younger than me have died. Um, I remember Ecclesiastes 2 that says, I'm going to leave everything to others and I have no control if I'll be foolish or wise with it. Um, No one's going to listen to this podcasted sermon in a hundred years. It'll be gone. I don't care how many servers we build, how many thousands of digital pictures I'm in, there'll be a time when nobody looks at them. And I don't just mean when Christ comes back, I'm just saying if He tarries another hundred years. No one's going to remember me. So what am I spending my time and energy on? Where are you spending yours? How should hope in Christ as our only rock, our eternity with God, how should that shape what you're doing today? To sum it all up, despite my best efforts to make Psalm 131 complicated, it is simple. Proud pursuits do not satisfy. God, the King who cares, He alone provides true contentment and eternal hope. We should be humble, happy, and hopeful because God is great, caring, and eternal. And He has proven it to us in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these reminders that You are far beyond what we can grasp, and yet You've given us so much in Your Word to, by which we can know You. Lord, help us to be students of it, and yet, Lord, help us to always remember who You are and who we are and our need for Christ. Thank You for Your precious and eternal promises that are our hope now and forever. We thank You in Jesus' name.